Well, I just want to welcome you here to this worship gathering. It's great to be with you. It's an honor to be with you on this lovely Lord's Day morning. Um, obviously, we are continuing in our teaching series in 1 Corinthians entitled Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. <clears throat> in the previous section, that was chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, Paul identified the source of the Corinthians' troubles, and that was their flesh, the symptoms that flowed from their flesh, and in that text he identified jealousy and strife, and then as well as the solution that could help bring them back to biblical unity, and that had to do with giving God the grower what he rightfully deserves, all honor, praise, and glory, our utmost highest commitment, and then as well as giving God's fellow workers, the apostles, pastors, and so on, what they rightfully deserve, which is not the same thing that God deserves, they were to merely get support and prayer, encouragement, and obviously their wages. And we know in this church that these people were obsessed with their preachers and going above and beyond anything that was healthy and holy in terms of honoring them. And just by way of transitioning into the next section here, I would simply say that the Lord's coming to reward his people was probably one of the Apostle Paul's greatest motivations. In a sense, everything the Apostle did was motivated by that particular truth. His objective within the supreme objective of glorifying his God and Savior was to prepare himself to stand before the Lord and hopefully hear from the Lord, well done and good, good and faithful servant. That was kind of Paul's goal, his angle, what he was striving towards, and what he taught other Christians to, to work toward. Paul was not the kind of guy that did things halfway. Uh, when he ran a race or fought a fight, he did so to win, to win the imperishable wreath of his Lord's reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul was never trying to compete with other believers for a reward from the Lord. And that's kind of what was happening in this church where you had little factions that claimed to belong to this preacher or that preacher. They were competing with one another. And, and Paul, that was never, ever his angle, never his goal. Back in verse 9 of this chapter, chapter 3, he declared, Paul that is, for we are God's fellow workers. And in the next section, he uses a construction metaphor to illustrate spiritual truth concerning the Christian's service and rewards. Every Christian is a fellow worker, a builder, a craftsman who will or will not receive rewards for their works. The Corinthians were fellow craftsmen, but they were cultivating carnal unity in their congregation rather than being spiritually constructive. You might say they were being spiritually destructive in a way. They were building the world into the church rather than building up the church in the world. There's a huge difference. And Paul now sees them in danger of losing any future reward that they might have from Christ. In an effort to bring the Corinthians back to the divine job site, Paul describes the foundation we build on, the materials we use, and the inspection of our work. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. And before I pray, I'd simply like to say this is probably one of the most challenging texts in the whole book. It is uh, very, very convicting, very challenging, and very, very necessary for me and for you. So this is going to be one of those hard sermons. Hopefully not coming from a hard man, but from a humble man uh, that has himself, myself, in mind as I present these things to you. Because I, as well as you, fall into these traps 
Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. I will pray for God's help before we get to work. Lord, we need your help now. May this sermon not fall on deaf ears or stony hearts. Lord, convict us by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Help us to hear your word, to believe your word, to comprehend your word, and to desire in the highest way to obey and live your word. And I don't know of a Christian, Lord, who, who doesn't want to be rewarded for, for their service. I think that um, the Christians in this room feel that way, but it's necessary that we understand how we can get there. And uh, so, Lord, just we submit to you, we humble ourselves, and we ask, uh, ask you through the Holy Spirit to train us, please. And may you receive all the glory for this message and this text, obviously. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. We can pick up where we left off last Sunday, and the first thing that I want to look at this morning is the very first thing that Paul teaches the Corinthians, and that is about the foundation we build on. The foundation we build on. If we're all workers, if we're all craftsmen as Christians, then we need to understand what we're to build on. I think there's great confusion about this truth in the church today, and we see this point in verses 10 to 11. Listen to what Paul says. This is the next thing he says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We stop there. Paul begins this next section with this high concern in his heart and his mind for these believers. He begins by basically describing himself when he first came to Corinth and came to these people. He saw himself or sees himself now as he's saying this as a skilled master builder who laid the foundation. Obviously, he's using some kind of construction metaphor here. Maybe there, maybe there were a few builders in that church that could totally relate to this subject or metaphor. But in any case, that's the direction he goes in. And he says very clearly at the end of verse 11 that the foundation that he was laying or had laid is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul used similar construction language in Ephesians 2.20 where he described the foundation as Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And then back in Romans 15, 20, he ties the foundation to the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ and the gospel are in a sense synonymous because the gospel tells of what Jesus did. If Jesus is foundational, then the gospel is foundational. So bottom line... The foundation is Jesus Christ, even the gospel, because it describes the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think of it like this. When Paul came to Corinth and preached the gospel, he was like a skilled master builder laying the foundation for these Corinthians. And that foundation is and was Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, probably unlike a great many centuries to follow. In the first century, gospel preaching was absolutely foundational. It was. And it was the apostles that preached and laid this foundation. When Apollos arrived in Corinth and began to preach the gospel, he did not lay the foundation. Paul had already done that work. He began to build upon the foundation that Paul had laid, he began to set the wall stones, so to speak. And Peter actually calls believers living stones of a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2, 5. That's what we are. We are living stones that form the walls and rooms of God's spiritual house, the church. Jesus is the foundation, the, the chief cornerstone. We are the, the living stones that form the walls and the rooms as such. 
When someone comes along preaching the gospel in reached or unreached territories, they are building upon the foundation that the apostles had laid. Missionaries do not lay the foundation. They build on it. Ministers do not lay the foundation. They build on it. All believers are likewise commissioned builders. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But we do not lay the foundation. We simply build upon it like Apollos and a zillion other faithful men and women who have preached the gospel through the centuries. In a very interesting way, the New Testament uses this same construction language just about everywhere. It really does. We are God's fellow workers. We just studied that last week, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. We are fellow workers and laborers, 1 Corinthians 16, 16. We are fellow workers for the kingdom of God, Colossians 4, 11. We are fellow workers for the truth, uh, 3 John or 3 John 1, 18. We are partners and fellow workers, 2 Corinthians 8, 23. We are fellow workers in Christ Jesus, Romans 16, 3, 9, 12, and 21. We are fellow workers and soldiers, Philippians 2.25. We are plainly fellow workers, Philippians 4.13. We are beloved fellow workers, Philemon 1.24. We are approved workers of God, 2 Timothy 2.15. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. It's everywhere. This construction language is everywhere in the New Testament describing us as craftsmen, as workers, as fellow workers, as, as builders, as, as, as construction members. If you are a Christian... You were created in Christ to build. You are a worker. You are a builder. You are a craftsman. You might not see yourself as such, but that doesn't change who you are and what you've been commissioned to do. You are a builder whether you recognize it or not. How many of you have ever thought of yourself as a builder? And I'm not talking about your profession because we have some builders. We have a painting contractor. We have a jack of all trades who built everything, even his own house. I was a tradesman for years. But how many of you have thought of yourself as a believer, as a builder? It's not something we hear very often. It's not a title that we think of. But we are builders. MacArthur said... All believers go through their lives and through history building on Jesus Christ. Toward the end of verse 10, Paul issues a warning to us builders, obviously to the Corinthians and to us. He is saying, we, talking about him and the apostles, we laid the foundation. And he is saying to every believer for all time, be mindful of how you build on this foundation. Watch what you do. Now, this warning from him to the Corinthians and then to us, it tells us that it is possible to build incorrectly, doesn't it? We don't need a warning if we can't, if we, if we can just build with perfection all the time. I don't need a warning. And that is exactly what and precisely what the Corinthians were attempting to do, at least in two ways. They were attempting to build incorrectly. First, they were trying to remodel the foundation by integrating Greek philosophy with the gospel. They wanted Greek philosophy plus Jesus Christ as their foundation. And Paul says, you cannot do that. No one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, and it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cement. He's the concrete. You can't mingle in anything else with him. So that's one thing that they were attempting to do, to add to the gospel. Secondly, they were cultivating carnal unity, which is divisive or divisive. 
How could they engage in, in mutual upbuilding in, in such a tumultuous, divided church? How could they build each other up, which is what they're called to do as builders? 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it wasn't happening. These folks were not behaving like spiritual builders. They were acting more like a demolition crew and a wrecking ball by wrecking each other. So first, they were attacking the very foundation. Secondly, what they were attempting to build upon the foundation was division. They were building, no doubt. They were building. They were builders and they were building. But what they were building wasn't good, wasn't pleasing to God. Even though much of what they were building, they would probably profess that they were doing it for Jesus. See, the point is they had a solid foundation to work from. Paul reminded them of it here in verses 10 and 11. It isn't philosophy, evolution, modern science, secular ideology, gender studies, or any other truth-suppressing nonsense, Romans 1.18. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only, forever. MacArthur again says, the, adding to what I just said, the foundation is not New Testament ethics many of which are found in other religions, nor is it the history, traditions, and decisions of churches and church leaders through the centuries. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. Christ is the foundation, not only of the church, but of creation itself. Because in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. So he is the foundation of the church. He is the foundation of all that exists. He sustains it, it all. So... What are we to build on? What is the foundation? It is Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. Second point, the materials we use. We see this in verse 12. It makes total sense that if we have a foundation to build on and we're all builders, then obviously we need materials. We have to work with materials because you can't put anything together without materials. Again, at verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, again, that's Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Stop there. Paul is presenting to the Corinthians and to us and to all believers for all time two categories of building materials. The first is comprised of superior materials, gold, silver, and precious stones. The second is comprised of inferior materials, wood, hay, and straw. Now, in the ancient world, both categories of building materials were used in residential and commercial construction. A lot of times you would have a, a, a wall that was put up and it was covered in mud, and maybe it was reasonably durable, but then you would have a thatch, you know, roof. And so you can kind of see, and obviously when we're talking about precious stones, gold, and silver, the temple had these things laden throughout all the walls and everywhere. So these are real categorical building materials that people used in those days. These are real categories. And if you think about it, every building project requires building materials, right? Uh, if you've ever worked in construction, there were times where you sat there in the morning waiting for materials to arrive. Well, these boneheads over at American Lumber, they're not boneheads anymore. I shouldn't say that. This is being recorded. Somebody from there is watching this going, I have to quit my job. But I would wait for doors and materials to show up. And sometimes they wouldn't show up till 11 or 12 with my boss expecting me to have this house banged out by the end of the day. And it's like, well, I couldn't do anything till 11 o'clock. You have to have materials. Every project requires building materials. And in the ancient world, these were legitimate categories. To build a house, you need two-by-fours and two-by-sixes and sheetrock and plaster and stucco, 
roofing, shingles, tile, carpet, lots of fixtures, right? You need a lot of stuff. A lot of materials to put together a house. To build a high-rise, you need girders and glass, lots of concrete, metal studs, all sorts of stuff, all sorts of materials. The same is true with God's construction of the church. Materials are needed. The gospel, think of it like this. The gospel is the blueprint Jesus Christ is the foundation. Individual believers are the living stones. Our building materials are either, according to this verse, gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. And then our acts of service, when we serve the Lord, that is our constructive or deconstructive labor. That's how it works. You've got, a, you've got blueprints. You have to have blueprints to build you got to have a foundation, you got to have materials, and you got to have laborers, you got to have experts in their field. And, and what essentially Paul is doing here is he's, he's speaking metaphorically in verse 12. This is a metaphor here. These building materials are metaphorical. What do they represent? They represent our faithfulness. They represent our motivation, and they represent our attitude in Christian service. Those three things. The idea here is that if we serve the Lord faithfully, this is gold. If we do it with proper motivation, that is silver. If we maintain a godly attitude as we serve the Lord, that is precious stones. And yet, if we aren't faithful in our service to the Lord... If we allow other things, especially the things of the world, even leisure, to dominate and consume our time, thus keeping us from the Lord's work, that would be the building material of wood. If we serve the Lord but are, are motivated by pride, we want to show off our knowledge, skill, or commitment, or by insecurity, we do what we do to gain acceptance from others, or by selfish, selfish, just pure selfishness, we're serving the Lord to get something from the Lord or others, that would be hay. And if we engage with the wrong attitude or a poor attitude, we serve the Lord because we think we have no other choice or out of compulsion or pessimistically or negatively, this is straw. That is straw. Or hay. Yeah, it's straw. Um, now, there are a zillion ways that guys have tried to interpret this, this metaphor here, and this is the way I've gone with it. Some of them have just thought of all the works that Christians do, and that's what their idea here. It's everything that we do. But I think that it has more to do with the thought behind it, the motive behind it, the attitude behind it, rather than just being everything we do. For instance, like on Judgment Day, I stand before the Lord, and the Lord looks at me and says, well, you invested a considerable amount of time into the kingdom of God, but you also in invested a lot of time into your hobbies. And all of those hobbies I need to now burn with fire and destroy because they're utterly useless. I don't think that's the meaning of the text, that just everything that we did that wasn't about the gospel is going to be consumed. And the reason why I don't agree with that, that interpretation is because I think God knows very well that not everything we do is aimed toward that. And he knows that it's not even possible for us to do that. So I think this has to do with faithfulness, motivation, and attitude. That's what I think it has to do with, and that's why I'm going in this direction. You may disagree and want to go in the other direction. That's fine. <clears throat> Paul is saying this. If we build on Christ the foundation faithfully with the proper motivation and with the right godly attitude, it is like building with gold, silver, and precious stones. But if we build on Christ the foundation unfaithfully, or not much at all, and if we are improperly motivated and or engage with the wrong attitude, that would be like building with wood, hay, and straw. I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to tell these Corinthians and us. That, I think, is the right interpretation. Now, the Corinthians were not only attempting to remodel the foundation, 
by adding a little philosophical swill, they were trying to use the wrong building materials. They were. They were trying to use the wrong materials. The evidence is seen in how carnal and weak this body or house of God had become. When superior materials are used, the house is strong and sturdy. But when inferior materials are used, the house, is, the house becomes what? Weak and wobbly. To build on anything other than Christ alone is to build on sand, Matthew 7, 26. And if we use inferior materials, what we build will be flimsy, maybe a skyscraper made of toothpicks. That's the thought here in verse 12. Paul is saying that you're all builders. Corinthians, you are builders, and you need to be mindful of the foundation that you're building on. Make sure that you're using the right materials. You want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones, not with wood, hay, and straw. This is what he's saying. This is what he's teaching them and teaching us. So our materials are either of those two categories. And then thirdly, you have the inspection of our work. Verses 13 to 17, the larger section. We'll start at 13. Listen to what Paul says next. He's got the foundation. He got the materials. Now we got the inspection. And it makes total sense to follow his rationale and thinking. This guy knows how building is done. He knows what it takes. He knows it's going to be subjected to an inspection. Unless the person didn't get the permit and is building a secret shed in their backyard. Right? Good luck when you go to sell the house. Right? Where did this thing come from? I don't know. Magically appeared. Verse 13, each one's, listen to this, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Stop there. Paul tells the Corinthians that an inspection is coming where each one's work will become manifest. And what that means is it means that their work will be brought into the open for examination, for testing. In construction, there are several inspections. Each major step of the construction process is inspected by some kind of self-proclaimed expert. Most of the time when, work, when I was working with inspectors, when I was in construction back then, they didn't seem to know much, but they sure knew how to call me out. You've got the foundation, there's an inspection. You've got the framing, there's an inspection, the plumbing, the electrical, the roof. In fact, until all of these things are inspected, you cannot make forward progress. You cannot begin to close up the walls until... Your second, it's probably your second inspection of your plumbing is done. You can't close up the walls until that's done. If you get ahead of yourself and start closing up the walls and sheetrocking and all that, dude comes to give an inspection of the plumbing, that stage of the plumbing. You're taking everything out. You have to redo it. It has to be inspected before you can move to the next step. And I've seen it on the job site where a guy was really mad having to tear stuff down. It's like, well, you didn't wait. There is also a, um, a final inspection. A home cannot be released to its new owners until it passes the final inspection. And think, I, In fact, I think that most banks won't send the funding until they get that. And that's what Paul is pointing to here, a final inspection. That's what he's talking about. Now, some say that this text refers to what we call the Bema Seat Judgment, or the judgment of Christ, where Christ will judge his people's service. And so some will read this verse, and they'll use this verse to support this theology of the Bema seat. And uh, it's, it's the judgment of the elect, not of the reprobate, the judgment of believers, not of unbelievers. That's what they say. That's what they think. Now, I have great difficulty with that particular interpretation of this particular verse because we see unbelievers being you know, judged right here in the immediate context in verse 16. 
So if there is such a thing as a Bema seat judgment where Christ judges the church and believers for their acts and works of faith in these things, if that's separate from the great white throne or any other theology of judgment, I don't think you can use this verse to support that because we've got unbelievers being judged down in 16. To be quite honest with you, I'm, I'm not even sure that I believe any longer in multiple judgments. Um, I, I'm not sure that, I, that there's going to be all these different, you know, one for the believers, one for the unbelievers, another one after a thousand years. I, I'm not sure I believe that any longer because as I read scripture, I, I, I keep seeing one judgment for believers and for unbelievers. That's what I keep seeing. So I don't know how people are parsing this out and you've got all these judgments. I just, I see one in this text. I just keep seeing in Scripture one judgment, not necessarily multiple judgments. And maybe what I've done throughout all the years is just misunderstood what I've been reading. And maybe there is just one judgment. That's what this text shows. It doesn't show some separate thing. Paul says this is going to happen on the day with a capital D. You notice it? That's not like any other day. That's a special Day. That's why it's capitalized. It refers to something in particular, not a regular Monday or a Tuesday or the Lord's Day. This is the real Lord's Day. This is Judgment Day. It's Judgment Day. When is Judgment Day? There's great speculation as to when it'll be, but I have become more and more convinced over time as I study the Word that it will happen right at the second advent when Jesus returns. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. If there is, if the Bible supports a singular judgment, then it's going to happen right when Christ comes back. Now listen to what Paul said to his protege, Timothy, regarding the exact same day. This isn't a different day. It's the day. He says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8. He's talking about the same Day he uses the exact same title, although I will have to admit it is not capitalized in 2 Timothy, but I think it's the same day. In fact, you'll see that the day even in the Old Testament, and it's always been thought of as the day that the Lord Jesus judges the living and the dead. I think when Jesus returns, he's going to render one final judgment. He will judge the righteous believers and he will judge the unrighteous unbelievers. On that day, everyone will stand before the Lord Jesus, believer and unbeliever alike. And the works of believers will be made manifest or be brought into the light for examination, for inspection. And what we did as Christians, how we built upon the foundation, will be tested by fire, as Paul says, to reveal what kind of building materials we used. This is the meaning of verse 13. I really don't see how you can arrive at any other conclusion. I don't see how you can come up with multiple judgments or some separate judgment for believers. I think that's the meaning. It's plain. It's clear. Why do we need to add meaning to it? It's right there. Now, down in verses 14 to 17, Paul describes three types of craftsmen and the rewards they shall receive. Okay? The first craftsman, A, is skillful craftsman. Verse 14. Listen to what he says. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Okay, so the skillful craftsman, according to Paul, is one who wisely invests much of his or her time in service unto the Lord. Why? Because they know the days are evil. Ephesians 5.16. So for the skillful, skillful craftsman, his or her mindset 
is to spend time in the church serving the body of Christ. It's to spend time evangelizing the lost. And you get this sense here that it, it's someone that, that does this frequently and regularly. Not once a year, not once a month. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I do this at my church and I, I'm on once a month, once a year. That's my service. That's not a skillful craftsman. I've been thinking about this at our church, and it's a small church, and we, have, we still have a great many areas of service, and, and our mentality over the years has been, well, I do this and that's it, but we need to have an everyone engage in everything mentality here. Just because you're making coffee for one month doesn't mean you're off for the next 11 months. You are a builder. Just because you serve up here singing or playing an instrument doesn't mean that when you're not up here doing that, you can't serve in the nursery. A skillful craftsman utilizes their time and leverages their time for the gospel because they know the days are evil. Quite frankly, they just want to serve the Lord in any sort of capacity. They, they, they're not overly worried about where they think their gifting is or their skill set is. Put me to work for the kingdom. That's the idea. That's the mentality. And they serve faithfully and regularly. And much of their service isn't even seen by us because they're serving out of their home with their neighbors or in some other way. The skillful craftsman invests a lot of their time serving the Lord. He or she is not under the false impression that, that all things done in Jesus' name are somehow pleasing to God. That's a false way of thinking that, well, if I just, if I just do it for Jesus, it's going to be okay. You would be amazed by what people will do in the name of Jesus to justify what they're doing. See, this person, this skillful person, is skillful. They not only invest their time, talent, and treasure into the gospel, into the church, but they don't think that just because, you know, they can say, well, I, I'm doing it for Jesus, that it's somehow pleasing to God. No, no, no. They are actually mindful of what they are doing and why they are doing it. Someone once said, attitude is everything. I, it's a dumb saying, but I finally found an application for it. Because to the skillful craftsman, this is literally true. He or she is not just worried about what they're doing. They're, they're, not, just, they're not just concerned about what they're doing. They're concerned about their thought behind it and their motive behind it and their attitude behind it. They don't want to just give God their works. They want to give God their thoughts their motives. You see the difference? They are constantly evaluating and testing their own motives, their own attitudes. This is what the skillful person does. They are cautious. They are careful. Quite frankly, I think there's times where the skillful craftsman will just take his, his self or herself out of service for a moment because they understand that their motives and heart isn't right. And I say, you're one confession away. Don't take six months off to ponder that. That's ridiculous. Confess that now and get to work. But they will. They will say, I, I don't know if I should step into the pulpit and preach because I have had a horrific attitude lately. I haven't been properly motivated. I should have a heart that's set aflame in love for God because he has first loved me. I should be serving him because he loves me and I love him. And sometimes when I step into this pulpit, it's out of sheer duty. You see, the skillful craftsman is concerned about their motives, concerned about their attitude which means they are concerned about the quality of their work because it's not just what you do that makes it quality. It's why you do it that makes it quality. The Lord judges the heart. Remember this. I don't care what you build. You could build something that is, is physically appealing, alluring to the eye, gorgeous, wonderful, but if you didn't do it with the right heart... 
and the right attitude and the right motive, I see something beautiful, but I don't see what's behind it. The Lord does. And he doesn't see it as beautiful. He's got to put a flamethrower on it, and you're going to watch it go up. Can you imagine the surprised look there will be on Christians' faces at this judgment? Well, I thought that, uh, you know, I constructed that whole big Dutch hollow-esque house for the Lord, and, well, he just hit it with a twister and then blasted it with fire. Hmm. I guess I should have checked my motive because I did it to get something from him. I did it to earn his favor. When the cross was telling me all along, I always had it. This is serious stuff here. I'm now thinking after studying this that probably half of what I've done is going up in flames. Yeah, I'm pathetic. And you are too. This is scary. The skillful craftsman is concerned about motive. They are quality control. They test their self. They want God to be glorified in thought, in planning, and in deed. The skillful craftsman faithfully builds upon the foundation and serves the Lord with proper motivation and attitude because they're always testing their self to make sure. Therefore, on the day when his or her works are brought out and tested by the purifying fire of Christ's judgment, what he or she built will survive because they use the right building materials, gold, silver, and precious stones. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? Because they use the right material, the right motive, the right, the right frequency and faithfulness. They were faithful. They kept investing in that. And then, they, and then they had the right motive and they had the right attitude. Those are the right building materials for what we're putting together. It's not just building on the foundation that qualifies it as good. It is how we build and what we build with. So that's the first one, the skillful craftsman. Secondly, or B, you've got the sloppy craftsman, verse 15, gather S's. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. <laughs> Literally, this could be rendered with smoke damage. He's going to smell like smoke. The sloppy craftsman is not a wise investor of his or her time, nor does he or she pay much attention to their motives and attitudes. They build. They're builders because all Christians are builders. But their work is shoddy. They do not think to give God their best, right? They don't stop and check their self and their motive and their attitude, making sure that am I, if I am engaged, I am building, am I giving God the first fruits of my attitude and motivation? Am I doing it because I love him? Am I doing my very best for him? Or am I looking at the church like it's second hand? You know, it wasn't too many years ago, and it probably still happens from time to time, you know, and it's a temptation for all of us. You have an object at your house. You say, well, I really don't need this anymore, and maybe it doesn't function 100%, but it's still somewhat functional. And then the first thought that comes to our minds is, let's go ahead and drop it off at RHC and let the church make use of it. Great. I now have a three-legged dog at the church. It's a tripod. That is not giving God your best. The church is not a dumping grounds for your stuff. It's not. Now, I appreciate the thought behind maybe we could use a half-working Keurig. One that only gets to 75 degrees. We just do iced coffee. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you give. The church is not a refuse site. Buy something and bring it to the church. Now, I understand the sentiment. I get it. I, I appreciate the generosity. You should just be happy for any generosity. No. No, because somehow Phil has to rent a trailer to take it to the dump later. Or Jared has to haul it out of here. Or Harry or somebody else. This is one illustration. 
Right now you're thinking, I brought five hand-me-downs to the church. I need to find them and get them out of here before Phil realizes it. I mean, come on, man. Think about it. Sloppy craftsmen. The work is shoddy. They don't give God their best. The sloppy craftsman builds upon the foundation, but his or her motives are usually off and their attitudes aren't great either. They serve begrudgingly, especially when asked to fill in at the last minute for another fellow builder who is either sick, traveling, or just plain flaky. I got to go into the nursery. Oh, you know. And I understand it. You had your mindset on worshiping. I got to make the coffee. You know, you just wanted to come and, and whatever. And the time is short. The days are evil. It is an opportunity to pour the gospel into those munchkins or to pour the gospel into that coffee. Which would not be decaf. Think about what you're doing here. We, we forget about what we're doing, don't we? We reduce what we're doing down to just some remedial elementary task, and we are serving the body of Christ. Even in something as, as simple as making coffee or fixing a urinal, <laughs> dropping that big breath mint in there, I do it for the Lord. It matters. You know, what we do is we judge service by perceived value. Well, if I do this, it, it doesn't really have much value. Yeah, a, a big breath mint in a urinal has value because it stinketh if we don't have it. Don't think that what I do is greater than what you do. That's Corinthian thinking. Don't be a sloppy craftsman. What they do is they, they, just don't, they just don't give it their best. They just, I'll just fill in. Or maybe they're just flaky and they don't show up when they're supposed to. It's not always our fault if we have to fill in. That kind of bothers me too if you have to just jump in and fill in when you had your mindset on doing something else. But you can be a sloppy craftsman by being flaky and not showing up and doing your job. By deciding to be a builder at home or doing something else. We have got to get back. I'll tell you what, the skillful craftsman values the Sunday service above all other activity during the week. They do. Because they know that they get to come together and worship as a corporate body and use their time, talent, and treasure to invest it in the most important entity living organization on earth, which is the church of Christ. Sunday ought to mean everything to you. More than football, more than driving people around, you can do it after. The sloppy one just, well, it's just, you know, church is something we do, not who we are. And they, they feel like because that's their view, they can just drop it on a Sunday and do something else that they feel is of more importance. And that's what we convey. I'm not talking about vacation or being sick. I'm talking about just, I just, I just don't want to go. I want to do something else. How could we ever sit there and be okay with ourselves thinking that? I guess we just don't have a proper understanding of what the church is and what our gatherings are. The sloppy one does all that stuff. Therefore, on the day when his or her work works are brought out and tested by the purifying fire of Christ's judgment, what he or she built, because they did build, but it will not survive because they used the wrong building materials. Wood, hay, and straw are not going to stand up to fire. Their works will go up in flames like Rome in A.D. 64 or San Francisco in 1906. Notice the details in the second half of verse 15. He will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the sloppy craftsman, the one that doesn't have the right motive, right attitude, doesn't really engage much, and when they do do stuff, it's sloppy work. They don't really care about their work. That person will suffer losses, which I think has to do with maybe they will or will not get a reward, or the reward won't be as great as it could have been. 
But he does say that they are saved. You see it, right? Now, let me ask you this. Aren't you glad that salvation is not by works? Think about it. This sloppy craftsman, which I think I've played a few times in my faith walk, wouldn't even make it into heaven if salvation was based on works. The works would not stand up to Christ's testing fire. I am glad that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. But may that not be an excuse to be a shoddy craftsman. Amen? Well, I'm saved, so, you know, it's okay. That is not a Christian attitude. That is the attitude of an unbeliever. Lastly, C, subversive craftsmen, verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, and some disconnect these two verses from the passage we've been walking through. It belongs, it belongs, it belongs. He is not done talking about service and rewards. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? What a piercing question. Listen to what he says. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Wow. I think you could do an entire 20-part sermon series just on these two verses, talking about what it means to be the temple of God. Before describing this subversive craftsman in verse 17, Paul reminds the Corinthians of their new identity. Through faith in Jesus Christ, they had become God's temple with God dwelling in them through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ratified the new covenant with his blood, a new holy temple on earth was established. The stone and mortar building with all the jewels and all the gold inlay and all that stuff, that particular building in Jerusalem, yes, it was breathtaking. Yes, it was gorgeous. But at that particular moment when the new covenant was ratified, that building became void and it was replaced with flesh and bone. That's new covenant theology. The people of God, believers, have become the new spiritual temple of God on earth. He dwells in them through the Holy Spirit. We are walking temples. What should that do? That should inspire holy, righteous living. I am a temple unto the Lord. He does not meet. He does not come down and descend and, and dwell in buildings made by human hands. He invades and possesses human beings. Me and you if you are a Christian. Incredible that he doesn't dwell in a facility. He dwells in flesh and blood. You and me. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what was going through the Corinthians' mind when he said this, when they read this. Oh, man, we haven't been acting like a temple at all. Some of us have been acting like the temple of Aphrodite. Some of us have been acting like the temple of Zeus or some other pagan god in the Roman, Greco-Roman pantheon. Hmm. You see, we can start to get to the point here. In antiquity, you need to understand the context. In antiquity, in the days of old, in these days, the penalty for defiling the Jewish temple, and even the tabernacle before the temples were built, for defiling the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, for just defiling it, according to the law, was either banishment or death. Numbers 19.20 and Leviticus 15.31. Where are you going with this, Phil? Just listen. If someone other than the reigning high priest entered the most sacred place or sacred room in the temple, the holiest of holies, and he can only do it once a year, if anyone other than him did that, they would be executed. They would be put to death immediately. Leviticus 16.2, Hebrews 9.7. 
In fact, a, a series of keep out signs in both Greek and Latin were posted along the temple wall at regular intervals to warn away those who were non-Jewish and thus unfit to enter the sacred space. Two of these keep out signs have survived to the present day. The most complete of the two, discovered on the Temple Mount in 1871, reads, it says this, No alien may enter within the handrail around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. In other words, if a non-Jew or Gentile person, that's a non-Jewish person, entered a restricted area on the temple grounds, he or she would be taken outside the beautiful gate to be stoned to death right then and there. The Sanhedrin tried to nail the Apostle Paul for allegedly bringing his Greek ministry partner, Trophimus, into the forbidden area, Acts 21-29, but Paul did no such thing. They saw Paul, Paul went into the temple grounds all the time. He could, he was Jewish, but they saw him running around the city preaching the gospel with Trophimus and they assumed that he had brought him into a sacred area and they wanted to try to kill Paul for that and Paul had never done that. What's the point? The point is the temple was taken very seriously because it was God's abode on earth, his physical dwelling place among his people. Exodus 15, 17, 1 Kings 8, 13, 2 Chronicles 2, 6. Okay, so there's your context. Now we get to verse 17. We're talking about the subversive craftsman. The subversive craftsman is a builder like the others, but he or she does not build upon the foundation. In fact, they do the exact opposite. They build against the foundation. They build against the Lord Jesus. They subvert the truth and they try to supplant it with every wind of doctrine and human cunning. Hebrews, or not Hebrews, but Ephesians 4.14. They attack the gospel. They hate the church. They persecute God's people. Their mission is to create utopia, but what they actually create is a hypersexualized, genderless, familyless, lawless, truthless, logicless hell on earth. Verse 17 is a warning against any and all who attack God's temple on earth, the church, believers. Now there were outside attacks being made against the Corinthian church. And sadly, there were inside attacks on individual members, right? That's what we see in our context with them fighting over the best preachers and all this stuff. What Paul is saying is be mindful of how you treat one another because you might be attacking God's temple, On and the person who attacks God's temple is a subverter, is a destructive, subversive craftsman who aims to bring down all things good and holy, godly. They attack on the day when the subversive craftsman's wicked works are brought out and tested by the purifying fire of Christ's judgment. He or she will be destroyed for attempting to destroy God's temple, the church. They and the devil and the demons will be cast into the lake of fire where they will suffer torment forever and ever and ever. Revelation 21, 10 to 15. Make no mistake. You could be an unbeliever in this room today, and I pray for you, and I'm glad you're here. And you might think that, well, this really doesn't apply to me because I'm not really hostile against the church. Everything done outside of faith is hostility against God, even if you do it nicely. Point is, we will all stand before Christ when he returns. Our works will be exposed and examined. What we built, will what we built survive the fire or will it burn? 
And I would say more importantly, will we survive the fire or will we burn in the lake of sulfur, the lake of fire? You see, only believers will come through this, the day, that judgment, only believers will come through it unscathed. Even sloppy craftsmen will survive, but only as through fire. They will suffer loss. They will have smoke damage on their apparel. They'll smell like they just walked through a fire, but at least they will be welcomed into Christ's kingdom because they repented of their unbelief and believed the gospel. Subversive craftsmen, unbelievers, will not have a chance. The hammer of the righteous, omniscient judge will fall upon them swiftly and with unprecedented force. You know, when I was a, a young man, I, I've already pointed to it a few times, I, I worked in construction for many, many years. In fact, at you know, high school, that, that's what I did. I started working as a window hanger and then graduated out of that because that was horrifically hard work, jumping over big trenches and carrying windows that were 10 times. I was Ralph Macchio, the karate kid at that. I mean, I weighed like 110, and I was picking up windows that weighed 120. That was funny, right? It was just weird. And it was just brutally hard work in the heat, and then somebody got me involved with finished carpentry. And uh, we were doing cruddy apartments at the time that are now probably $1,500 a month. Uh, but I remember you know, just cutting baseboard and installing baseboard, installing really cheesy laminated cabinets. And, you know, in apartment complexes, they tend to use the cheapest stuff. But that's how I got into it. I was, they used to call me base boy because all I would do is cut baseboard all day. And I loved it because it was better than hopping over trenches and carrying heavy windows. But I did that for many, many years. And, and by the time I left the trades, I was a journey level finished carpenter. There wasn't anything that I couldn't do. You, you wanted me to install a staircase, I could do it. So I, just, I could do just about everything. I did it long enough to learn it all and to hone and sharpen my skill. And, and I tell you, we, we had, you know, you're always working with other guys. And this outfit I worked with had a bunch of different guys. And one guy we called the master because he was by far the best finished carpenter I've ever met. I mean, every miter was, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't suck air through it. It was so tight. Some guys were like this. And you're like, dude, I could see you through that. You know, I mean, it just everything he did, we called him the master. You know, and every time we said that, he was like, that's right. You know, he was very humble. Um, but then there were guys that we worked with were, that were, um, they were terrible carpenters, you know, just that the, when they would hang a door, the door wouldn't be level, and the reveal that goes down the door, it'd be hitting at the top, brand new door hitting at the top, and you know, a half inch at the bottom. And I'd walk by and look at the work, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, that's not going to last. That's not even going to get through the inspection, even though this is a cruddy apartment complex. But everything they touched, it just, it just wasn't all that good. And they were the nicest guys in the world. I remember one dude, he would eat these super hot peppers, and he gave me one one day, and I had to go home. <laughs> it blew my face off. And I was like, maybe this is why I, I can't do the, I can do the work so good. I don't eat these peppers. I don't know. But we had a nickname we would give to guys that really did poor work. We called them hacks. That guy's a hack, right? Man, I mean, it's like, he, you know, it's like, dude, you have a Ryobi compound miter saw. Did you just cut that door frame with a hatchet? The baseboard, like the, the corners wouldn't even meet. It's like they stopped here, you know, and, and it's like another three inches. And it's like, you're going to splice something? In a, I mean, it, just, it was just horrible. So we called those guys hacks. We did. Was that nice? Yeah, I thought it was during the time. But, you know, now that I look back on it, it wasn't very nice. And every finished carpenter starts out as a hack. I didn't even know how to read a tape measure. I was like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six lines, Fred. You know, it was just horrible. They were hacks. We worked with hacks. And I've worked for three different finish outfits, and they always had really skillful guys, and they had, always had hacks. And I felt like I needed to at least put a tube of caulking in that gap. 
and I'm not a painter, so we'd call Bruce. Bruce, get over here. Right? Bruce would be like, brother, I cannot help you on this one. Yeah. A finished carpenter should be so good at what he does, the painter shouldn't have to use caulking. Right? Yeah. And some of them were like, I just don't know if there's, I have three tubes with me. Maybe I can fill that hole. Do we want to be hacks, sloppy craftsmen for the Lord? Just think about that. Who turn out substandard work? Or do we want to be skillful craftsmen who serve the Lord faithfully with the right motives and attitude? You want to be. Slide back to the end of 14. Take special note of what Paul said there. What will be given to a skillful craftsman on the day? He will receive a reward. What will be his reward? I have no idea. But not knowing exactly what it is makes me want it even more. Maybe it'll be those delightful, super, all-satisfying words from Christ, our foundation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Matthew 25, 23. Be a skillful craftsman. Serve the Lord faithfully. Build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Use the right materials, gold, silver, precious stones, right? Do it frequently and faithfully. Have the right motive. Do it with the right godly, thankful, love-filled attitude. And your works will not only make it through the fire on the day, but you will be rewarded by Christ himself. How glorious.